Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. friends and listeners and welcome to a new episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast. This is Rudolf, your host, and this is episode 23 of season 8. 24 will be in the season, so next week is the final episode, the season finale, so to speak, of season 8. And I will announce the program this time a little bit earlier. And now I will tell you what's going to happen, because this is going to really to be a real special moment. Um, many of you um, have asked me to do an interview about myself, about me, yes, well, it's not by vanity I'm finally doing this. It has been years that people are asking me this, but of course I cannot speak to myself. So I've asked a real good friend, Carl Abrahamson, to interview me, and that will be episode 24. But, 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 there will be even more excitement about that because we have decided to do that live on Facebook and YouTube on Saturday, well, our night, our evening at nine o'clock Central European time, which is about three o'clock in the afternoon in New York City, or it will be 12, if I'm not wrong, 12 on the Pacific coast, um, 12 noon on Saturday. I will announce that also on YouTube and Facebook. But of course, the interview will then also be available the next day as a regular interview. But if you want to see us talk, if you want to speak, also maybe no, not speak to us, but leave us notes because you can in the chat leave us notes and questions. And maybe Carl, who is interviewing me, might use your questions for me. I don't know. He is the one who leads the interview this time. So it's Rudolf, next week's guest. I'm saying that now because I know many of you are not going to listen to the very end of the show and then will be surprised. And of course, because this live event is something that's not usually happening. Also, there is something else I want to tell you before we go into the show. Today, I'm going to interview Ian Rees, and he has recently published a book called The Keys to the Temple, which talks about uh, Diane Fortune's mystical Kabbalah and their occult novels and Penny Billington and Ian Rees have co-authored that book and the publisher, which is British publisher Aeon Books, who do a lot of very interesting books, also many by John Michael Greer, published by Aeon, etc. So they have given for you, for you, the listeners of this podcast, a special 20% off the book by Ian Rees and Penny Billington that we are going to talk about here today. So go to Aeon Books uh, website, that's Aeon Books, it's spelled A-E-O-N, aeonbooks.co.uk, buy the book, The Keys to the Temple, and when you go to, the, go to pay, then you enter the special code KT20, KT for Keys to the Temple, 20 for 20%, 20% off your 
buying this book. First time this happens on this show, and I'm very happy and grateful to AN Books to give me that possibility. Um, I will, of course, repeat that later once again, and I will also put the code and the link to the website on the uh, website with the show notes, on my website with the show notes, thoughthermes.com, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. But I believe by now you all know the access to that to that page. Okay. Well, thank you all for being here. Thank you for being returning customers or being new customers, whatever you are. Thanks for being patrons for those of you who are patrons. And well, why don't you who are not a patron yet go on the Patreon website, patreon.com, look for the Thoughts Hermes podcast or on my website, thoughtshermes.com. There is the Patreon button. That's the easiest way. Become a patron. We do need your support. We need your help. Uh, I know it's difficult times for everyone at the moment, but also for us here. So we need to have your support to maintain this podcast. So please consider becoming a patron. That would be lovely. Okay, no further talk because there's many things to be said later on. And I would like to now present you some music. You know, my... My love for Wilbur Brochette, uh, the guitar player who did very psychedelic and very mystical music um, with his guitar. And I have already had his music several times on this show. And so again, today he will be opening the three pieces of music that we present here today. So it's Wilbur Brochette and his Pyramids of Power that will open the musical circle of episode 23 of season 8. Pyramids of Power by and with Wilbur Burchett. Enjoy!
Wilbur Burchett, Pyramids of Power, a lovely piece that I really needed to play him again on this show. To introduce the interview now, Ian Rees. Ian Rees is today my guest here on the Thought Hermes podcast. And we are going to talk about the new book, The Keys to the Temple. If you missed what I said in the intro, you will get 20% off if you buy that book from the publisher Aeon Books from their website and enter the code KT20. Keys to the Temple, 20%. Easy, right? KT20. Just for listeners of the Thoth Hermes podcast and valid until September 30th this year, 2022. Right, Ian Rees has co-authored this book with Penny Billington and he will also be publishing a new book later this year, also with Aeon Books. And, um, I, and the book is called The Tree of Life and Death. And as often I do, I read some excerpt from the books and the authors that I present. I'm going to read you a short passage from the beginning of that new book, which has not yet been published, because I think it gives us a perfect introduction into what is to follow in the interview. So right after this, after this lecture, I will pass on into the interview to tell you before what's going to happen in the show, of course, into about 34, 35 minutes into the interview, we'll take the musical break as usual. So that is all as always. But now let me read you from the Tree of Life and Death, um, interesting, interesting title, I believe already, from that book that will be published in September or October um, by Ian Rees, also on Aeon Publishing. Here we go. I have worked with this tradition for nearly 50 years. It has demanded that I be continually attentive to the ways in which I either act in the service of light or become an obstacle to it. It has asked me to take seriously the reality of the inner worlds and subtle beings and the ways in which the outer and inner worlds affect each other. I have stood in old churches that have become dormant or despoiled, in older sacred sites that have somehow become detached from their original purpose, on old battlefields, in the back streets and alleys of Jerusalem and the Drakensberg Mountains of South Africa. I have also worked with it in the middle of cities, on trains and buses, in council estates and colleges, in gatherings of powerful people, in great cities and with powerless and despairing people in small towns. In all these places and occasions, the choice has been whether to find a way to affirm unity and the mystery of the indivisible nature of love and will, or to divide will and refuse love, to align with the Tselem, the true human image, or to set up an idol in its place. I was taught this art by two remarkable people, Walter Ernest Butler and Tom Olleman, both in my view, tzaddikim or adept Kabbalists in their capacity to enhance life and transform disturbance. Now let's meet the author of that beautiful text, Ian Rees. Here comes the interview. 
And now it is a great pleasure for me to welcome Ian Rees here on the Thoughts Hermes podcast. Ian, hello, good evening, and it's really great to have you here. It's very good to be here, Rudolf. Really nice to talk to you. Thank you. Um, Ian, we jump right into the subject because um, I often uh, present my guests here and ask them about their path, how they came into the path. And we just heard that wonderful uh, introduction to your first chapter of a book that's not even printed yet, but which I had the pleasure to, to get from you as a manuscript. And I must say, we'll talk about that book a bit later in more in-depth, but that first page of the book gave me such a wonderful presentation of yourself um, and our listeners had heard that just now um, tell us more about that because the way you express what you are and what you do in those nearly 50 years that you talk about um, yeah well tell, tell us more about it let me tell you more about it I mean what I'm talking about there is really the, the heart of the Kabbalah it, mm -hmm. it, it, it's the um one of the, the, the key feature of working working with the Tree of Life in the way way that I was taught it by uh, Ernest Butler and Tom Mollerman is that the purpose uh, purpose of inner work is to enable ourselves to ba to balance ourselves and to bring a sense of balance and increased uh, life and and beauty into the world. Um, and, and the tree, I mean, the, the top title of the book that, that you've read from is called The Tree of Life and Death, because actually mm -hmm. one of the, 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 the traditions of the Kabbalah really look at not just the, mm -hmm. the, the light side of life, but the places where the things that go wrong. The, the yeah. places of the places of disturbance, the place that happen within us, between us, and and collectively, really. And in that in that introduction, I, I'm really looking at the uh, at a, a, a central art, really, that that's about bringing everything back into union. In a sense, the fundamental practice of, of the tree is to align with, with the, the deeper part of our nature and to step towards places of disturbance, both inside myself and in the world, and in a certain way to hold them within the heart in such a way as they find release. And I think in the, in, in the beginning of it, I'm talking about all the very different... You know, it's, it's, it, this is the sort of thing that, that um, can often be glamorized, and people can often talk about it as in very dramatic and very, very kind of yeah. hushed tones, really. But actually, it's a, in some ways, it's a quiet art. It's an art of letting yourself notice disturbance, letting yourself notice when things are... are um, somehow not working and aligning with, with if you feel like the, the, the spiritual source your connection to the tree of life so as to enable the things that are somehow got out have got out of balance in, in all kinds of different ways to find a way home back into the heart mm -hmm. so it, it's not at all like the traditional ideas of exorcism of driving things out it's a way of, of gathering things back together I mean, there's a great myth in the Kabbalah of the, of the Zadik, of the one who is, the, is aligned with the kind of the tree of life as being someone who gathers together the lost sparks. 
And the um, idea being that within every shape of disturbance, every pain for every awful place, there is actually a, a, a core of light, which if the um, enshrouding clipot, which is the kind of disturbed energy that surrounds the spark, can be can be sort of alchemized, then the then the spark returns into the heart, returns into the great bundle of the living. And it, you know, it's, it's in a way of this is this is probably the central uh, work of the of the Kabbalist, really. It's a work of, of unification, of bringing things together. Mm -hmm. So um, our listeners now have realized that today the subject we're going to talk about from different facets is the Kabbalah and the way of working with it, the way of approaching it. Um, yeah. We are going to speak a lot also, I believe, about the unfortune later on in, the, in yeah, this talk. Yeah. But first, we're going to talk about Ian Rees. And... Um, I mean, I shouldn't say that I'm not a native English speaker, but I hear a slight little um, either Scottish or Welsh accent well, in, your, I'm, in your I'm voice. Welsh. I'm Welsh. You're Welsh, right? Right. So you see, I had to, I had to leave it open for me because, <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, Welsh, great. So, like the unfortunate herself, actually, uh, she she also was Welsh. Is Wales a country where uh, I, I think also David Conway is from from Wales? Yes, uh, right, there are several. Is is Wales a country where where um, people are still more sensitive to spirituality, to uh, the world of the Western traditions? Yes, I think so. I mean, it, I, mean I mean, I started off here 50 years ago. Yeah, Rudolf. Then, no, I, I wouldn't have said it was because actually it, it's, uh, you know, if I, if I go back to... Um, if I go back to when I was 17 in the very, very early 70s... Um, you know, the Wales, the part of Wales I was brought up in certainly was it was a very orthodox Christian, um, oh, right. mm. very uh, Reformation, cha uh, Reformation type chapels, Baptist chapels, and and um, and um, the, in fact, my actual early teachers, uh, Ernest Butler and Tom and Tom Olliman, both lived in England, and, and yeah. um, but it, it was a sort of I mean, if we go back into those very early days, which is very hard hard to remember now, the um, finding your way in occult study was very was very difficult because they, mm -hmm. they, they you know as, as the seventies wore on and 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 then uh, books and things became more available, but but contact with with um, occult orders, occult teachers it was actually very difficult. In fact, my um, <laughs> entrance into occultism came as a result of a magazine called Exchange and Mart. Okay. Which is a, basically a magazine mainly used to, to sell cars. Yes. Uh, but right at the end, right at the, at the end of the magazine, there was a, a Thorson's had a, the publishers had a little, um, had a little kind of catalogue that you could, that you could write off for. And so I wrote, because I was, you know, interested, I wrote off to the, to, to Thorson's. And, uh, and, and in those days, finding occult material was rather like buying pornography. It was under the counter, you, you know, so this plain <laughs> brown paper envelope would arrive. And, uh, and, um, but I had a sort of pivotal moment, even in that, that first cut, because uh, I, I was looking at two books. One, Ernest Butler's book called Apprentice to Magic, and another book by w William Gray called Inner Traditions of Magic. 
and course, earn yeah. a book with a pound cheaper. And when you're 17 in the 70s, <laughs> a pound is an awful lot of money. Uh, and it, I've often wondered what would have happened if I'd if I'd if I'd if I'd, if I'd, if I'd, if I'd bought a Bill's book because because consequently yeah. I bought Ernest's book. I wrote to Ernest. I then and then started a whole journey. And no doubt, if I'd bought Bill's book, I'd have I'd have written to Bill. I mean, I met Bill much later on in my in, in my life. But uh, yeah, one of those strange moments that are going to decide your fate and. You know, and it's all runs on, a, on, the, on the price of a pound. One pound, can, <laughs> one pound can change your life. Mm. Exactly, exactly. Amazing. But I mean, in order to do that, in order to go there and be, well, okay, you saw that advert, but then still to write to the author and stuff like that, that's something that must be something in you that drives you to do that. Yeah, no, there was a very powerful energy driving driving me around all this. I mean, I'd, yeah. when I was very when I was very young. I'd been very I was very involved in Christianity, but it, it didn't work for me. It didn't speak to me mm. somewhere. So I was uh, very very actively search searching for something. And, and, and that um, came from your from your parents' background, or, um, or no? It came from my grandparents. My father and my, my my father was an atheist. My mother was a very devout Christian, and they. And very antagonistic towards esoteric mm -hmm. study. Um, my uh, grandma, both my grandfathers, I never knew my mother's father, but he was very involved in spiritualism, died before I was born. Mm -hmm. My father's uh, father, who lived next door to us, um, was an ex-miner, but, but again was very interested in spirituality and kind of and yoga mainly, and used to practice meditation. Oh. So he was a so so. In a way, it sort of skipped a generation. Yeah, yeah. and, uh, and um, um, so I suppose my grandfather. Because, I mean, I was not into yoga in the way my grandfather was, but it, 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 there was at least something quite close up to me that showed, that that showed me there was an alternative spirituality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and the other thing that was very helpful early on in my life was Swansea Public Library that had an amazing occult section. Really? And, and, oh, really? extraordinary. I mean, some, some librarian, some who I will never have met probably, was ordering occult books, was ordering, you know, and sort of uh, Alistair Crowley's books and, and um, theosophical books. And so, so that sort of in, in the early days sort of fed me when I was probably when I was about 14, 15, 16. And then, um, so I was actively searching for something. And then once I, I suppose the particular thing that happened, once I got Ernest's book, I go to the Apprentice to Magic. It's very practical. It's uh, written as a series of letters from an occult teacher yeah. to a student. And, um, and it asked you as well to buy the Fortune's Mystical Kabbalah, which was the kind of theory book. So these two things were really the sort of beginning, I suppose, of my occult life. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, I, I kind of wrote, wrote to Ernest and then, and, um, and then began my training with him. And, and then I mean, he, sort of, he sort of had the oversight of my training. And my particular teacher was his disciple, Tom Molloman, who I ended up working with for about 20 years, really. How amazing. I mean, that sounds, um, uh, forgive me that I say that it's only 50 years, but it sounds like from another world uh, it's, for, it's, it's, for young people here today. And, and, yeah. and it's, I mean, we're about the same generation, you and I, but yeah. it's, it's, it's still, it sounds from another world, doesn't it? It is completely does. And when I think back to those days, you know, particularly, you know, I live just outside Glastonbury where you can now buy books on any spiritual tradition on earth. And, yeah. and, um, and uh, but in, yes, it, it, if I think back to those days, it was a very completely different kind of world somewhere. 
and so there were you know difficulties in finding stuff but also when it, because there was a lot of effort in finding anything any books you found any information you found you you gave great concentration to partly because it wasn't yeah. it wasn't easy to come across you know so it, absolutely i mean and and now this is a little excursion from your life but we return to that uh, immediately but when you talk about the 70s the 80s when you started uh, 70s mainly when you started to be interested also many other things in life were quite different in the 1970s and in a way maybe it's nostalgic i was born in 1960 right but maybe it's nostalgic to think the 70s and 80s were more uh, it was more liberty and more freedom it's maybe not true but you felt like that nowadays you have more access to those books more access to possibilities and still the compartmentalization of also esoteric arts and and, and life in general has become much harder again but why is that I mean, now in talking about esotericism, not about general life. Well, I think part, partly I think what's happened is, is that in, in that the, in the seventies there was just a great surge of energy and life, and can mm. and, and in some ways because the, the um, there was a lot of experimentation and a lot of newness, uh, and uh, and in some ways I think one of the things that has happened to the esoteric arts over the years is that they've in a certain way become institutionalized. They're, 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 they're partly, you know, structures have grown up around them. There's orders have formed and positions taken, and in a way that, that that I don't think it was like that in those early days. It was kind of, you know, cause it, yeah. it was hard to find people people who thought like you. You, the, the uh, we were finding our way. Someone, I think it does something about that pioneering kind of energy somewhere. The, the, mm -hmm. That um, that. Um, I mean, it still can be around in places, but I think everything is much more formed. And and also, I think there's something about the... Um, I mean, this is true, I think, in general life as well. The uh, the overkill in terms of information. Yeah. You know, that the, the, there's a sort of... Um, there's, there's a way in which, at the, you know, the flick of a computer now, you can find any ritual you want, any meditations, any esoteric theories... Uh, and it, and it, this leads, I think, to um, or can lead to people acquiring a sort of a cognitive understanding of, of esoteric work that isn't matched yeah. by an embodied embodied experiential kind of process somewhere. Yeah, yeah, the embodiment uh, is of course. Uh, crucial crucial to that and uh, yeah no, I, I understand what you mean um, so but in order to to now let's return to Ian mm -hmm. in order to to meet uh, Walter Ernest Butler and to work with him especially you probably then moved to, to London or to, to, to the London area right now no I didn't I, I used to um, go and visit Tom, Tom and Ernest I mean Ernest lived in Southampton and yeah um, yeah And Tom lived over in Essex, and so I went. And, okay. so, and so I would travel, travel across. This was a, a great adventure for a young Welsh boy, traveling across, sure, traveling yeah. across the country in those days. Mm. And uh, so I would go and stay with them, and and and, um, um, and, lot, and again, it's a different world. A lot of the esoteric instructions came by letter. Yeah. So they'd write yeah. to me. I would write up. I would write up my, write up my, um, you know, meditations and my experiences. I would write principally to Tom. Tom did the day to day looking at my work. So I'd write to Tom. He would write back to me, uh, and um, and 
and uh, and so and so it would go. And actually, and, and what, what happened in in the because Ernest and Tom and can and, Del, and, and Dolores Ashcroft Nowicki and Mike Ashcroft and Michael Ashcroft Nowicki were also were work at this time. Uh, they hadn't yet created the Servants of the Light. They were, they, right. they, so, but they were putting together a group called then called the Helios Course in the Practical Kabbalah. So they would. So uh, what happened as I moved into this more deeply is, is that they, Ernest was writing lessons and and and, um, and wrote eventually a fifty a fifty lesson course on the on, on the on the Kabbalah, which I then which I then followed. So the so the in a sense, what happened out of that very early time is is that what visually was just a very loose connection of people started to form the nucleus of what was a very small occult school, basically, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, sort of, and, and in a way, this was Ernest Butler's last work in his life, really. And, and, and right. you know, because he was, just because I met him, let's see, I met him in about 1972, and he died in 1978. This is the sort yeah. of so as he wrote the course, as he developed it, and then handed yeah. it on to Dolores, who was his successor. Yeah, you know, this was his this was his last his last piece of work, really. Uh, absolutely. Well, let's just help me just to put that straight for people who might not be as familiar with those groups. Um, Dionne Fortune, she created a fraternity of the inner light first, right? Yes, she did. Yes. So basically, yes, Dionne Fortune creates the fraternity fraternity of the inner light. She herself had been trained in the Stella Matutina and and also by somebody called Theodore Moriarty who was also was a kind of theosophical kind of teacher mm-hmm. so they so that's where she kind of came from but she separated from that and formed the from the fraternity of the inner light which then later became right. the society of the inner light which exactly but that's still, basically the identical organization but just changed yeah. name just changed, point, just changed right? name mm. basically right now Ernest uh, Ernest Butler was a um, was uh, was a member of the fraternity of the Enlight, but he but he too had worked with another theosophical teacher called Robert King, who was his right. in some ways had been his principal personal teacher, and um, and Robert King in a sense handed him on to Dion Fortune, so he worked worked with Dion Fortune, and then um, after Dion Fortune's death, there was a there was a period of time when the fraternity of the Enlight became a uh, a much more orthodox Christian. Knockout organization, yeah, and um, and Ernest and a number of other people left. Well, in, I mean, I think I mean, Ernest remained a member of the of the fraternity of the inner light all his life, but he he didn't become active any longer, and then mm. worked with uh, Tom and Dolores and Mike uh, and uh, and Basil Wilby in the beginning to, yeah. to set to set to set up what this or this course on the Kabbalah that later then turned into the Servants of the Light. Servants of the Light that still are very active. Like, yeah, like yeah. are the, both, both organizations are still active. Well, they are very much so, yes. I mean, the Servants of the, the Society of the Inner Light, uh, Servants of the Light, um, it was passed on to Dolores, who then passed it mm-hmm. on to passed it on to Steve Critchley, who is now the, few years now ago. Few years ago. Yeah. Uh, exactly. I, I I have to point it out because the, the 
actually the very first episode of this podcast five and a half years back almost now was with Alan Richardson who wrote the ah, uh, right. biographies of Die and Fortune and uh, so we started a bit on Die and Fortune in this podcast and not many months later so it's all, almost five years back uh, Dolores was on the show as uh, well and we had a lovely entry and so if somebody wants to hear that please go on the website and listen to those old uh, uh, especially the one with with Dolores I mean she's, she's so uh, amazing she was uh, she's I believe 92 back then already and, and but she's still the same she's oh, not she is changed still, she's uh, not uh, unchanged uh, entirely uh, really yeah she's absolutely so um, well thank you for clarifying that so uh, but you um I, I know you are also active, I believe, as a psychotherapist in yeah. as a profession. Yeah. Um, um, you were mentioning about the cliffhoff and that we have to bring things back together before. Now, the word healing means exactly that. Healing means the root of the word healing means put things together again, make it whole again. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, and has your professional work and your esoteric work well question might be banal but uh, how has it worked together how did it how did it combine or make it yourself yourself whole one of the interesting things really that, that, that happened to, to me was that the because i was in, as, as you can tell i was involved in occult work you know, very very early yeah and um now the the one of the things that happened to me, and I was also trained as a psychologist, first of all. So after okay. so I went to university, I was, a, I was a psychologist, I was a cognitive psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I had a very, because of my occult training, I had a very concentrated mind. Because of my psychology training, which was very cognitive psychology, it wasn't the psychotherapy training I went to do later on, I, I was very good at rationalizing things. Uh, and one of the um, one of the, th- the thing that led me into psychotherapy, in fact, was it was it was a the a bit, one of the problems I, I developed partly because of my capacity to concentrate on my mind and to over over rationalize. Like I was pushing aside or pushing down difficult emotions, difficult experiences, had quite a lot of difficult stuff from my from my childhood that I was able to suppress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, the, the really uh, later on in my life, one of the things that one of the most effective things that happened to me was actually I had a breakdown. I went to pieces. I became really depressed. Mm-hmm. There were some things happening in my personal life that were very difficult, and um, and I was try- applying my usual kind of either using my cabalistic mind to con- to drive away the kind of difficult feelings or trying to understand them by, by, by being psychological. Nothing worked, really, and I kind of... And actually, I, have the, so I had a really, really strong experience of depression and needed to go into therapy as a result as a result of that. And one of the things that, that I learned from that, really, was that... And it was humiliating, in a way, because actually I had always been in charge. And actually, this is one of the big problems, really, that I'd, I had learned a way of use, misusing occult... Uh, methods um, as a way of kind of um, keeping myself in control of my experience. And what, so what happened is, as I went to pieces, I, I, I um, gradually, through the help of a therapist, started to realize that actually the, the, the thing that I was missing in the whole process up to then was the whole experience of embodiment. 
uh, in a way, what, what I was the, the both the occult training and the psychological training kept me away from surrendering into my body and surrendering into my actual actual experience. Mm-hmm. And I became very, you know, then realized I needed to do something about this. And, and I came across a, a psychotherapy training institute called the Karuna Institute that was, that at that time, this is now a bit different, but at that time was very, very body based. It was really teaching the ability to work with the body, to work with touch, to work with body, body process, and in particular to release trapped, um, trapped emotion. And 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 um, it it drew on neo neo Reichian ideas, also drew also drew on ideas from Buddhist psychology. So it it was a really interesting fusion of psychotherapy and, and psychotherapy and Buddhist and, and and Buddhist mindfulness methods. Really. Okay, uh, and it sounds a little bit like transpersonal, transpersonal psychology, right? There. Yeah, it's very much so, but having a very strong body component. Right. So, mm-hmm. so, so that in a way that transpersonal that, that doesn't because what I needed really was to really descend into the body. Uh uh-huh. Yeah. And really, kind of. Uh, And in, and in a way that, that in a way this was a this powerfully influenced my whole approach to Kabbalah and esoteric work and kind of and and and, um, and, and set off on a whole kind of journey about bringing the Kabbalah and bringing psychotherapy together and you know and, and you know extraordinary things happened to me in some ways I spent a lot of time I, I use directly use the Kabbalah in my work with clients. But I've I've trained a lot of therapists both here and in, and and in and in Israel in Jerusalem. I've worked in Jerusalem for about 20 years, working with Israeli psychotherapists and looking at mm-hmm. putting the the Kabbalah together with the body and 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 the uh, and, uh, and and process to enable something new to emerge. Which is an amazing, amazing thing to do. I mean, well, I was yeah, a, yeah. it was one of these extraordinary things, really. I mean, I, you know, because oddly, because of course, the, the what, what happened is I was I, I trained in the Karuna Institute. I became one of their principal teachers, and we had an Israeli student who invited me over, invited me over to um, Jerusalem initially, just for um, just for a few days and sort of and, and to run a workshop. And um, and of course, because I was in Jerusalem, it was natural to bring the Kabbalah into that. And actually, it was uh, yeah, <laughs> it was you know, it was actually very powerful. And so it set up a whole relationship. That well, how did that work, baby? Please correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, uh, um, the the Dion Fortune and Ernest Butler approach to Kabbalah is something that we would call a. Christian approach to Kabbalah because it was, of course, transformed in the yeah. 16th, 17th centuries into something completely different from the original, um, yeah. if you can name that original Kabbalah. And when you bring that back into the Jewish context, as I get it, as you just, how how does that how does that work? How does that react, so to speak? Well, it's complex. I mean, it, it's I mean partly because I had done a lot of work with Tom and had worked beyond. I mean, because my work had developed over time, I had worked with a lot of the traditions that that, that, that come out of the Judaic Kabbalah, mm-hmm. some of which you, you find in that book, the, the Tree of Life yes. and Death. Um, but but it but of course the the um, the basic approach I have really comes out of the Christian Hermetic Kabbalah and so it was complex in a way and and what was one of the interesting things was that that a lot of the people I was working with were secular Israelis 
who were actually quite drawn to the Hermetic Kabbalah. Um, because it, it, certainly at that time in Jerusalem, a lot of the Kabbalah was, was really owned by the ultra-Orthodox community. Mm-hmm. And so um, the, 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 many of the people I were working with were not religious in that sense. They, were, they would define it as a spiritual, but not religious. And so, yeah. and so part of the work I was there was to help them access their own traditions in a new, in a new way. Uh, and, and of course, I learned a great deal from them. So my own understanding of Kabbalah sure. by working with is working in Jerusalem and and, and, and in Tel Aviv, and um, meant that, uh, but, but meant that my own understanding expanded. And there were and at times there were some difficult encounters, particularly in public talks. And I did public talk, imagine, you know. Yeah. So there was, you know, like, you know, there, there's a lot of kind of you know, who are you to come and talk to us about. about I, I that's why I was asking because, uh, of course, mm-hmm. yes, as as you say, especially back then, the, 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 the yeah, Kabbalah among the secular Jews, I believe, was not very common because it belonged, uh, mm. so to speak, to the to the tradition. Yeah. No, and that yeah. in a way was, that's partly what was very exciting, I think, for the people I worked with, that they could access it directly, access their own tradition directly mm-hmm. um, by working with somebody who was outside it. You know, it's one of these strange things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, somebody outside their culture brings aspects of their culture back to them, which they can then refine in their own way. Right, right. No, absolutely. But... Um, I don't know if you can answer that question, but um, you were you were saying something very interesting, and maybe you can you can deepen that a bit for our audience. Misusing your occult knowledge, you said, because you were probably, if I get you right, you did. It, it was very head oriented. It was not. It you didn't apply it, so to speak. Um, how can a young or not so young occultist who is in that same situation realize that they are doing it? But because I believe that's happening quite often, that people uh, learn, read, and do everything, but do not actually embody it, as you say. No, I think. I mean, partly the the, the problem I think is the um, you know when we're looking at a, working in occultism, we're working with these very powerful images. Yeah, uh, and um, and what what can happen? I think, and what what I certainly had happened to me is I'd built an image of myself that, that felt powerful, that felt um, in charge, and uh, and so when I was in trouble, instead of being able to know I was in trouble and listen to my body and listen to the, the fact that I needed help, I would retreat into this kind of this image of the magician. Of the, the the one who is in charge, the one who is powerful, who has mm-hmm. strong will and, and, and kind of can can, and, and in a sense that that, that becomes a defender. So rather that, that image becomes a defended place. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I talk a lot about in my work is the difference between an uh, an icon and an idol. Yes. I Now, an like icon them. is an image really that deconstructs mm-hmm. itself, that opens us, that opens us yes. into the light, opens us into deeper understanding. Whereas an idol is a, is a dominating image that that locks us in and 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 locks out the world. It keeps us in a in a, a self-referential reiteration mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. Yes, I remember that now when I read your your manuscript. That is a fascinating uh, setup, idol and and and, and icon. Because I yeah, I got you. But how do you think somebody could? 
realize if they are in that situation? Is it, do you arrive at some point where you make an experience or what do you see, what happens to you when you suddenly realize you're in that case? Well, what, I, what I'm careful about with, with, when I'm working with my students is to, to, to look at, at when we're working with the icons of our nature, there's a constant sense of flow and deconstruction. Mm -hmm. and an ability to, to keep moving into the unknown. When, the, when we've got lost, when we're trapped by kind of an idle form, what happens is you, you, things become repetitious. Okay. Right. So, yeah. there's, so, so, because what happens at that moment is we're starting to separate ourselves from the, the greater flow of the universe, mm -hmm. and we effectively start talking to ourselves rather than being open to the open to the wider field of that and one of the, one of the early signs of that is a sort of is a sort of a, um, a repetitious process that that is likely to inflate us that tells us uh, tells us that will help that we are good that we are powerful that we are strong mm. or, or or any or any such thing as opposed to working with, with the deeper aspects of, of work which are always deconstructive so you're always in a certain sense working on the edge of knowing so you're so that so that place where you where you're leaning into an experience of deconstruction and vulnerability right And, and 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 that's one of the major differences, I think. Really, the kind of because the, the as as we deepen into this work, we more and more acquire the capacity to tolerate vulnerability, to tolerate openness, as opposed to becoming more and more enclosed. Uh, and mm. um, I was at my friend, my friend's got a bookshop in Glastonbury, and I was looking at the, the, there's so many books these days about about black magic and kind of and people summoning powerful kind of Left figures. Left-hand pass, exactly. Oh, yeah, God, yeah. I mean, I mean I've got, you know, it's, it's very goth and I don't mind people being goths. But, but the, problem, the problem with the, the images is not really that they're summoning terrible evil things. I don't think they are, most of them. But, but they're filling, the, their, um, if you like, the, 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 their psyche with, with images that, 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 that stop deeper deconstruction. So you become the great wizard, you become the black magician, or you're going to become the white magician. It's a, you know, it's a, it can happen in either either direction. You, you become somebody who um, who knows and is in charge. And 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 I think if ever I start to feel like that, I know I'm in trouble, and I know I need to start, you know, examining myself really to do to see what's yeah. going on. Well, thank you for making that. Very clear. I think it's a very, it's a very important point. Thank you. I think so. Yeah. Let's take our musical break now. And uh, again, I will now for the next two pieces, the one now in the break and the one after the interview, play you music from listeners, from our listeners here who gave us music to listen to. And I find that always great. So if you have music, if you're a musician and want to have your music played on the show, music, of course, that you created, that is your music you have the rights for, do let me know, do send it to me, and I will be happy to follow that up. Great. So now this next piece we are going to hear is, well, again from Hassan Ismail. Hassan Ismail, who has already given us several pieces of music for the show and his new CD, Entropia. 
I think it's really great. He's also playing on the guitar like Wilbur Rochette who opened the, the, the show. And the piece that we're going to hear now by Hassan Ismail from his new CD, Entropia, is called The Mystic. So very timely named, I believe. Well, after that, we're going to return to um, Ian Rees and continue our talk this time now, even more in detail about his new book. And I want to remind you that you can get 20% off if you buy the book on the Ian Books, the publisher's website directly. KT20, the keys to the temple is the name of the book. So KT20, 20 for 20%. Enter KT20 as a code when you when you pay and you will get those 20% off as a special offer just for the Thought Hermes podcast listeners. Right, so when we return to the show, to the to the interview, after the interview, we'll have the third and last piece by another one of our listeners, Brian Lucas, who was already here with us in, I believe it was in season six, when we played three of his tracks, and this time it's another one of his tracks called Drudge Ember. So one repeat, Hassan Ismail and his uh, his his new track called The Mystic from Entropia. Then we're going to hear the second part of the interview. And at the end, we are going to hear Brian Lucas with Drudge Ember. And once again, I already announced it in the intro. There will be the announcement for next week. I'll give you more details in the outro today. And uh, so I hope you will not only listen to next week's episode, but also be present when it's going to be live on Facebook and YouTube. Right. Now, without further ado, Hassan Ismail, the mystic. Enjoy.
Let's start talking a bit more about Kabbalah itself and then move on to Diane Fortune and her mystical Kabbalah. So you you bought that book by by Ernest Butler, which of course contains it as well. But um, if I remember well, it has been some time that I had that book that you mentioned in my hands. But um, uh, I think it's more a general approach to magic than it's not centered on Kabbalah, uh, even though it, the Kabbalah makes an important part of it. Right? Would you? Would you uh, you'd like no. Um, well, that's true of his book. The, the there's there's two or three books. There's magic in theory and practice, which is a that's I meant, yes. No, I think it's I meant, a, yeah. so that that wasn't the book I bought. I bought a book. This I bought that one later. But the so the, yes, magic and theory and practice is a general approach to magic. Yeah, mm-hmm. apprentice to magic. Um, this and this. You wrote two other books. One called the Magician: His Training and Work, which is about the training of a Kabbalistic magician, and okay. then mm-hmm. Apprentice to Magic, which are a series of Kabbalistic letters, really that are about that actually uh, teach right. you to teach you to work with the tree. Right. But you actually said Apprentice to Magic, so I was wrong. I I transposed that into what I knew in my mind. So that, that that's what happened. Okay, so you immediately got caught by caught in a positive way of oh, course. Oh yeah, no, by, by the Kabbalah and its its way of, of, of using it, no? Oh completely, yes. No, I mean one of the the things that really appealed to me, um the, the Kabbalah, the tree of life in a way, is um It's actually a very, it's described often in very complicated ways, but actually it's the earnest way of looking at it was to see it as a, a diagram of relationships mm-hmm. where you can look at and, and to look at it as a, um, as a, a way of exploring the, the deeper parts of the soul and the deeper parts of the universe. Now, it's bit, the basic idea of the, of the Kabbalah is, a, is this, this image of a tree of life growing from the growing from the earth, growing up to the growing up to the stars, mm-hmm. with the sun and the planet planet in, in in between. So it's a it's an archetypal shape, really. Right. So um, so the. the It, you know, there are very, very complicated books written about it, but actually it can be very oh, yes. simple. Right? And one of the and problems many, many, many books. <laughs> many, many books, thousands of books probably, really. You know, and, and, yeah. uh, but, but, it, it, but basically what you're, do, what you're doing is, is it, it's, an image of the, it's an image of the universe because it, it comes from the middle of the, from a medieval image of the universe, right? where, you, where, it, where it's a sort of geocentric cosmology. So you're on the earth, there's the moon, There's, there's Mercury and Venus, there's the Sun, there's Mars and uh, Mars and, and Jupiter, there's the outer, the great, then the outermost planet, Saturn, then the sphere of the stars, and then the theoretical beginning point, which is called the prime and mobile, the, 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 first, the first movement. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a, an image of the universe. And the reflection and the, the way the Kabbalah thinks about it is the is, is this image is also reflected in our soul so so it, it's like a mirror really as we look out so we uh, we look out to the mirror of the universe and that that the universe is reflected in 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 our own nature and the so that within us there is the the earth the moon The, the the planets, the sun, the, the stars, and then and the beginning point. Right, and um, very generalizing. Of course, there are two general approaches. One that makes something 
move down from Kether down to Malkut. So bring bring it down with the with the 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 the, 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 the arrow. Uh, and there is then the way of return, as it is often called, which is exactly the opposite, where you start, where you stand in the material world and move yourself up to something that's transcendent. Um, are those two paths opposites, meaning excluding each other, or are they combined as a whole no they're, they're complementary really because in a certain sense in order to in order to ascend the tree the tree has to descend into you because mm -hmm. in, in, in a way the the, the, the um, before we, we, we enter into Malchut which is the, the earth place we first of all find ourselves in in the world of the clipot the world of separation yep. and fragmentation mm -hmm. So if, we, so if we look at the, 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 the working with the tree, the very first step we have to make is the step into Malchut, the step which is the, the, the step into the awareness both of the body and of the and of the living world of matter. So it's the very first thing we do, we do is we step into that, and in a certain sense we. we, we we move in a certain way it's the, the direction that happens is a movement inwards so it's a bit like um as we step as we step inwards or that so we are met by the descending descending kind of uh, light and experience of the of the deeper levels of the soul and the universe so the very first step as i say is to step into malchut is to become um present with the body to notice the world around us, simply to notice, mm -hmm. to be present with the, with the objects in the room, be present in our sense of the body now. And that begins, in a way, the journey of the Tree of Life, because at that point, we are then, from that point of just awareness and presence and anchor that we get there, we start to be, be aware of the two sides of the Tree of Life. On the one hand, mm -hmm. we are conscious of the, of the Sephira Hood, which represents Mercury and the mind, Yeah. The Sefira Netzach, which represents fear, feelings, and Venus, mm -hmm. and then the, the, the and then we're, we're directly up against the the, the, the Sefira Yesod, which is called the foundation, which is the moon. Right. So we start then to step into the inner universe, mm -hmm. and um, part of what I, part of Penny and I did when we wrote the um, Keys of the Temple is to really look at this, um, how can we kind of simplify this kind of process so that we can uh, help people to get a, a, a feeling for stepping into the tree. Right. Uh, and um, so, we, what we, so what we principally did in that, in that book, which is a very much an introductory book to Kabbalah and, and into some of the unfortunate work, was to really focus on the on the on the middle pillar and the and the spheres of the middle pillar yeah um as uh, junction points as as, tra as transformational points mm -hmm. so in a certain sense so the first step is in Malchut, which is becoming present then there's, then there's, we look at the path between Malchut and yesod which is called the underworld path it's the mm -hmm. descent into the inner universe Yes. And then we step into Yesod, which is the foundation of the psyche and the foundation of the universe. And this is the place of, of, of the icons and, and idols of our nature, the constructed images. Um, and, 
And as we, in particular, enter into Yesod, we enter into, enter into a powerful connection between Yesod, Hod, and Netzach. So mind, feeling, and the collected images of, of our nature that enter into a sort of a, a, a spinning wheel, an inner dialogue mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. that continually um, creates a stability within us. Mm-hmm. But, uh, um, but also... Uh, can resist any any deeper exploration. The main aspect of the inner dialogue is is, is, is to create stability. I mean, for, yes, what is the foundation place of the psyche? Yeah. So its nature yeah. is to yeah. is to create a stable a stable experience. Now, one of the things that we do as we grow up, and certainly as I've talked about my problems in my past is we create a, a stable sense of self and an image of self and universe that we can bear to live in. Um, and that can be an image that may, you know, restrict us in many ways. It can be a, you know, for example, we may feel create an image of ourselves as an insignificant person that the universe doesn't care about. Mm. And, uh, you know, many experiences might have contributed to feeling that. And it's an awful place to live, but we have learned to live with that image. And that, that image, then, that is both not just an image of ourselves, but an image of the way the universe relates to us. So a cold universe that doesn't care about us because we are very insignificant. And the problem with that, that, that image is, of course, we can bear to live with it, but it, it restricts our, massively restricts our capacity for growth and, and deeper life. And as we engage with this in the, the tree of life, as we work, first of all, with this sense of being present in Malkut, entering into the inner, inner experience, we then meet that, the, the momentum, the years of having created this. And this is where the, you know, the practice, the Kabbalistic practices really are about slowing this process down. Because mm-hmm. we, don't, we don't normally experience the inner dialogue as a process. We experience it as a fact. That's partly because its momentum is so is so swift that it appears as a solid thing rather than something that is being recreated moment by moment. So a lot of the early work is to be, is bringing presence into the body, working with things like the middle pillar exercises that that and breathing and relaxation exercises as well that create a, a, a powerful holding frame that get us present orientated. So when we meet the spinning wheel of Yesod, rather than being swallowed by it, we can stay present in the midst of it. And as we start to, as we stay present in the midst of it, we start to interrupt and slow down the momentum of the wheel, and 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 gradually the, 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 it's, its its nature as an idol starts to open, becomes more lucent, mm-hmm. so that it, it starts to move from being. Um, idol to being to being icon. So we remember, for example, when a time when the universe was kind to us, or, or a time when we felt strong, you know, sort of right. uh, and central. And gradually, then, as we as we work like this, the, the 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 process kind of opens, and we start to find ourselves then stepping in the path between Yesod and Tiferet. Which is the uh, called the alchemical path, mm-hmm. and this is a, and, and as we pursue this path, this is very much the, the, this work of turning ideals into icons. We're working with the the, the 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 opposite sides of the tree, with the opposites of our nature, 
bringing ourselves back always into this kind of sense of balance and stability and increasingly being able to listen to the still voice of Tiferet, which is the kind of this sort of intuitive voice, the sense of presence that, that increasingly sort of draws us up, upwards and inwards into the place of, of deeper kind of balance. Now, as that happens, the, what you, um, the, you start to see links happening between Hod on the one side and Gebura, and Netzach and Gedula on the other side. Sure. So what happens is the mind, the tangled aspect of the mind, starts to acquire the clarity of Gebura the sort of the martial kind of energy, that yeah. sense of focus. The turbulent emotions of Netzach start to come into the, the sense of love and compassion that you find that you find in, in Gedula. And, and, and what starts to happen there is your whole nature starts to open and widen. And so there's a sort of a softening and opening, uh, a sense of, a, uh, of living in a much bigger world. Obviously, this is a lot of work. It's not something you just yeah, 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 yeah. keep on falling down and coming up again and 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 and, uh, and continuing in a way. Yeah, it, it's fascinating to, to listen to you how you how you explain that. You you, you mentioned uh, the book, the book, and exactly that book, the keys to the temple, which yeah. kind of was um, the initiate reason why we two were brought together and met here. Um, so it's a book that has just been released, I believe, about two months ago. Uh, yes, that's right. Yeah, uh, and I may mention here that if you have not listened to the intro of this show, uh, you guys out. There there um well your fault go to the website or go and listen to the intro because if you want to buy that book now until the end of september you get a special discount um which i was thankfully given to by aeon publishing who published that book for exclusively for the listeners of the thought podcast so go there and get that special code that you can find on the website and also in the intro of the show and get the book the keys to the temple and subtitled unlocking dion fortune's mystical kabbalah through her occult novels which i find a very interesting approach and it's by Ian Rees and Penny Billington who you just mentioned briefly um, we turn to the book immediately who's Penny Billington could you just tell us uh, a bit about her yes Penny Billington is probably best known as a, as a Druid author she's a, yes, she's a se her, senior yeah. member senior member of the Order of Bards Ovids and Druids exactly um, the Order of Bards Ovids and Druids all the places around here we had we had somebody on the last show here um, um, who, uh, and we had also Philip Cargom uh, about yeah. uh, who was doing the hundreds episode of this show so oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, well, well Penny is one of the one of the founder members of, of of Obert mm. and is a very senior, very senior druid, but she's also such, she's a very good friend of mine, and she's also but she's also somebody who has been interested in Dion Fortune all her mm -hmm. life, mm -hmm. and. Um, Yeah, what happened? I mean, the, writing the book is interesting, really, because it's uh, it's um, one of the things that happened to me is that, that but back in 2012, um, I was invited to do a talk on Dion Fortune in, in Glastonbury. And at that time, 10 years back, I mean, now Dion Fortune is very well known in Glastonbury, there's, there's conferences. But actually, sure. if all the, you know, Glastonbury had been one of one of the, her centers, but she had become completely forgotten, really. There was so the, really, oh, yeah, totally. I mean, it was strange. I mean, still be people who knew, but it, but it wasn't like a, she's now a publicly known figure. And then, you know, if we go back 10 years, she, she wasn't really. Mm -hmm. And um, 
so I, on a cold February night, when I, I was going to a rainy February night in Britain, I was going down to the town hall to do a talk, and I, and I suppose I thought there'll be you know five or six people and a dog, and we'll have a nice <laughs> chat, and we'll kind of go and we'll go home, and I kind of and because uh, I was just wanting to you know share with some of my experiences of the unfortunate, yeah, and. Um, astonishingly around this awful night um, we ended up with about 80 people turning up it was just extraordinary I have no wow. idea it was just something was being touched I guess on that day you know in people you know it had been well advertised but we didn't you know for these kind of talks with this extraordinary number of people and one of the things that one of the things I always do when I give, give public talks normally is to do is to conclude with a meditation because I'd like to give people some kind of flavor of the mm. uh, and uh, and how I how I normally do um, if I'm going to do visualization type meditations and they're, they're never scripted I get present and I kind of listen to what wants to emerge and then I let let it emerge mm -hmm. through me and uh, rather startlingly on this occasion what, what happened is, is that um, I had a very strong sense of, of a figure called Lilith Le Fay who is a, a figure from Dion Fortune's book Moon Magic yes of course uh, uh, and in the, the, the book Moon Magic so the, the, there's she, she um, inhabits a sort of a tem inhabits a temple on the banks banks of the Thames and there's and works and works with a great mirror through which mm -hmm. she experiences the, the the, the goddess and so what I found myself describing was the scene of, of the, the, the temple and the mirror and, and but but then experience the sort of the the, the sense of Lilith Fay walking into the room and, and being present with us and it, and it was quite a strange experience really because one of the things that can happen sometimes in, in um, when you get overshadowed by inner figures is, is there's a very strange resonance that comes into your voice mm -hmm. a bell bell-like resonance so there was as I still don't exactly remember what was said in that but, but, but so I remember this this figure coming through and talking about the um, the, talking about the renewal of the Kabbalah, the renewal of inner traditions, and, and some, something I don't really remember, if I'm honest. Mm -hmm. but, but it, and it really wasn't about the words. I think it was more about the sense of this this presence walk, walking into the room. Mm -hmm. um, and that led really to to me doing a series of a series of lectures in Glastonbury on the works of, of Dion Fortune, and, and partly, and as part of that, looking at the. Um, at the novels, at the novels, yeah. yeah. And uh, I mean, the original lectures are still on my website because they, they, they uh, okay. you know, because I just I, I just left them up there for people to listen to. Mm -hmm. um, but and and so this kind of work then developed a momentum, which which led to. Um, I mean, Penny had come along to the the the, the, uh, the, the talks, and, it, and Penny and I were friends, so we were talking about our mutual kind of interest in Dion Fortune. Mm -hmm. um, and and there's a there's a there's a, a bit in. I'll just read this a little bit, if I may, quickly. Which sure. In the book, there, there's there's, a, there's um, something that Dion Fortune herself says about the novels. It's because my novels are packed with such things as these, which is symbolism directed to the unconscious that I want my students to take them seriously. The mystical Kabbalah gives the theory, but the novels give the practice. Those who read the novels without, without having studied the Kabbalah will get hints and a stimulus to their subconscious. Those who study the Kabbalah without reading the novels will get an interesting intellectual jigsaw puzzle to play with. 
But those who study the mystical Kabbalah with the help of the novels get the keys of the temple put into their hands. As our Lord said, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. Hmm. So that's where we got the, the title, Keys to, keys to the right, Temple. Right, right. Yeah? Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, but where is that? Is that from Magical Kabbalah that you read now? Or? No, it's from, it's from the introduction to see, to the, to see Priestess. Ah, okay, because I've never come across that. that, that uh, yeah, I mean, I read the Sea Priestess, but I probably jumped in, sure, I'm afraid. Yeah, it's in the, basically, it's in the, um, the 1998 edition of the Sea Priestess. It's, uh -huh. in the it's in the introduction to there that, right. that, that that's quoted. Right. And I remember that when Ernest had said way back along that actually the, 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 the novels were related to the spheres of the Tree of Life. Um, and in fact, you know, uh, my friend Basil Wilby, the late Basil Wilby, had written a little book about the about the tree of, about the Kabbalah and the novels. Um, and the so what was known and what I remembered from the past really was the fact that the Goatfoot God is related to Malkut, Sea Priestess to Yesod, the Winged Bull to Tiferet, and Moon Magic to Daat on the tree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the other so the middle pillar, basically. the middle pillar, absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah, so the, yeah, so yeah, the, yeah. Um, the other feature of the of the book of the books is, is that men and um, a man and a woman working together in in, in different combinations to, mm -hmm. to generate new life. And so, as Penny and I were talking about this and getting very interested in it, we we, we had the idea that it would be great if a man and a woman could just do this together and work out the writing of writing of a book in di in dialogue right. like this. Right. Right. And um, and create something that would would put the keys of the temple into that into the hands of anybody who read read the book, so they could use the novels, use the mystical Kabbalah, and actually work work with this practically. And I want to underline that, or stress that you have said it a little earlier and now again, but I really want to say that also very clearly. This is. Not as you might at first by the subtitle think a book on the occult, uh, uh, a literary book about the novels and how they lead to the mystical Kabbalah. It's a really a practical book. It's the keys themselves. It's it's not just yeah. taking that phrase. It's the keys, right? No, that that was the whole point of doing it in a sense, really. Right. So that's why we took that. Because because and actually at the beginning I didn't know if it would work because I didn't because I thought okay let's let's take her literally at her word. And let's mm -hmm. see if we can put the Kabbalah together with the with the plots and the images from the novels. And let's see if that works. You know, and part of part of what I need we needed to do was um, to look at. Um, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, well, this book is about Malchut. This book is about Yeshua. This book is about mm -hmm. fine. I mean, anyone could, anyone can kind of say that. But actually, mm -hmm. if, if if it was going to be meaningful. We had to demonstrate the, the uh, identity between the, some of the images and the plot lines in the book with the spheres and the paths of the tree of life, and provide then uh, a practice that people could that people could use to experience that for themselves. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, who would you say the book is aimed for? To To the beginner in Kabbalah, or or um, to the experienced reader already, or is it aimed to somebody in particular, or not? I, I think it's particularly aimed at beginners. Think for Kabbalah, because it. it, it um, I mean, anyone who's interested in the unfortunate would find something interesting oh, in it. Sure, yeah, definitely. But, but, uh, but we particularly wanted to write something partly because. 
because Kabbalah can be presented in such a complicated way, we wanted mm. to write something that, that and somebody, it often is, <laughs> or often is presented in a horribly complicated way. Yeah, you know? and, and, yeah, and yeah. So we wanted to, to present something that, that that somebody who knew nothing about Kabbalah, if they, if they just put the book, got, got the book, and had the novels and the mystical Kabbalah, they could that that would be sufficient for quite a quite a lot lot of inner work, really. So that was, that was the re- I mean that was in a way the raison d'etre behind the book I think really definitely yeah do do you think one should read the mystical Kabbalah with that book or before or after or uh... um, I th- well, what what I think probably works best is to use the book and the novels and then later read the mystical Kabbalah. Yeah, and the novels, of course. Yes, that's yes. crucial to read the novels with. Them. I mean, it's crucial to have the novels. I think. I think the way the way it's written, you don't really need. There's enough information about the Kabbalah in the in keys to the temple. So if you put that together with the with the novels, then the, mm-hmm. that, that in itself is sufficient. Uh, right. And then later, if you read the mystical Kabbalah, it will make a lot more sense to you because you live you live yeah. internalized it yourself in a way. It'll open doors in in a way. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, that question, it's probably a strange uh, question, but Dion Fortune, I, I was surprised to hear from you that 10, 15 years ago, she she had, kind, even in the circles in Glastonbury, she had kind of not been very present, if I got you right. Um, so that has changed, definitely has changed again. But oh. um, um, how, how important... Is she in that world we described earlier, uh, where so much is around uh, on the subject, on different topics in occultism? Where does Dion Fortune, in your in your view, stand today? What's her role today? I think one of the really important things that she did was to really look at the connection between uh, our, our personal psychology and and inner work. Mm. And in a way, the, the, the and, and in a way, it's inter- I mean, it's interesting because within esoteric circles, there's been quite a big reaction against that uh, more, more recently. And um, but the what she did, and I think I think I think what she was concerned about, and why she wrote the novels, was she wanted to make the Kabbalah much more accessible, but but in in a way that that people would involve themselves in it so it becomes not such an, an external summoning of spirits but a uh, something that, that causes us to engage with our own souls and and to engage with the universe mm-hmm. and in a certain way one of the things that the, the, the novels i mean they're not great novels i mean they're, they're a bit clunky really they've you yeah. know they've written yeah. a long time ago but one of the things that 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 that, that i think we discovered as we as we worked with the books is that the the imagery is is very precise the the um, and so it's a um, it, it takes people right into the experience of the tree of life in a quite a gen, in quite a gentle way really in some ways mm-hmm. uh, and um, and I think what I guess one of my fears these days perhaps is that there is because you know fashions come and go once the psychological approach to occultism was, was everywhere and everything. And that was an overreaction in one in, in one way. Now the pendulum has gone in a very very different direction. It, it's all mm-hmm. that summon spirits. Um, but I, the, the unless we're able to relate to these things more personally, and then in particular to embody them, we 
standard of great risk, really, of, of, of creating a dissociated occultism that doesn't relate to um, our own lives or anybody else's lives. We could, we could potentially create a little little uh, cul-de-sac ghetto somewhere where we right. kind of where we're the masters of the universe with us, you know, but aren't actually relating to the, the world around us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In a certain sense, you know, if we, if we consider where we are in the world at the moment, if we consider the war that's happening in Ukraine, if we consider, you know, and, and, and the awful things that just happened in Gaza, the, yeah. the, the, the inner work should enable us to be present with this yeah. and to see our connectedness to this. Absolutely. I, I was thinking of that when in the very beginning of our talk, you talked about this, um, everything that falls apart and has to be put together again. And yeah. to what extent uh, an individual has the capacity of bringing things together, even in the large, in the bigger image. I mean, I, I believe you and I have our, our view and that which others might might think to be a bit grand, but um, you want to say something about that or, or rather not? Or? No, I, I think I, I think this is very important. I think there's a sense of our connectedness to the larger whole so that, mm. so the, so that yeah. each and every one of us are, are, are a key part of the universe somewhere. Yes. You know, and I think that the, one, of the, one of the things that we discover as we go deeper into occult work is that because we enter into this sense of deeper connection, deeper kind of flow, we, um, we enter into a, a, a kind of a continual dialogue that, 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 that's happening all the time everywhere. And, 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 the, and, and, and it's an odd thing. I think we have to both, on the one hand, take this very seriously and take our participation that seriously. And also we, we, we lighten ourselves because it's not, it's not Ian as a person, but it is yeah. that which comes through Ian or that which comes through Rudolf. And, and, and as we let ourselves open into that, open into that dialogue. Absolutely. Absolutely. And be, beware of the difference between the icon and the idol oh, in all that. In all that. And continually <laughs> we have to do that because you're all the Absolutely. time creating idols and, you know, Absolutely. and having to deconstruct them. So just to remind people, so this was the keys to the temple, which is the book that has already been published. And then there will be your book, the Tree of Life and Death. I believe it should be out by September, right? Yes, it's coming out in September. Rudolf. So very soon now. And uh, soon. really keep an eye on that. And honestly, I, I, of course, I didn't know about that book yet. And when I contacted Ian about our interview, he sent me that um, manuscript. I was more than impressed by it, I must say. And I really want everyone to get that book because it's, It's really, really very important. You mentioned the novels and the little clumsiness, but um, there are other books like that. Um, when you take, for example, Edward Baldwin Lytton's Zanoni, which has been oh, a yeah. foundational yeah. text also for occultism, wonderful text, Christianism, wonderful text. Yeah, yeah. But there's also maybe a bit lesser known the two Herr Buck volumes by Richard Waller de Lubitz, which in, in in their own hermetico Egyptian way are wonderful texts and beautiful uh, initiatic paths to, to walk through novels, actually. And then um, fortunately did the same here. And we should not underestimate the quality and the power of those books, should we? 
Oh, I think not. I think I think on the power of of a novel that's, that's written like that, because one of the things that a novel does, we we, we enter into the world of the novel. I mean, the Harry yep. Back books are, are incredibly beautiful, really. And, Absolutely. Uh, and uh, another um, author that comes to mind around that is is Joan Grant's book. So the, mm. you know, in a similar similar kind of vein, yes. really, where you yes. enter into a kind of a, a, an experience, sort of an inner experience of ancient Egypt. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, actually, um, I will in our show notes here. I will put also links to the Herbach books and to Zanoni and to the John Grant's books because I think it's really, it's really worth it. Because um, oh yeah, I think so. Um, if people want to read on with still kind of initiatic novels, they are mm-hmm. good examples. Oh, they're very good examples, um, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Um, Ian, after after that book, The Tree of Life and Death, um, any other thing coming up that we should keep an eye on or that you are secretly working at? <laughs> well, I'm just, just about finishing The Tree of Life and Death. We just, just get packaging just that exhausted. up. Exhausted. Um, well, I'm not exhausted. I, um, and I, yeah, I am interested in... Um, one of the things I'm looking at a little bit, really, is um, the, the, the mysterious and difficult figure of Alistair Crowley, who um, oh, right. um, who I, I refer to a bit in The Tree of Life and Death, because actually when, do, th- yeah. th- there's a... Um, um, because actually, as I was thinking about initiate no- novels, well, his, his book Moonchild contains one of the finest examples of, of in, in fiction of absorbing a demonic form into the heart. I quote in the book and sort of, and Crowley, I think, is an interesting figure. He is, um, I think, tends to be demonized or deified. Mm. Uh, And actually, when we look at at some of the deeper aspects of Crowley's work, there there is some very astonishing stuff there, really. uh, And almost a kind of quantum Kabbalah, uh, if I can use those words. uh, and so, I mean, I was quite interested in him when I when I was very young. But I was I was quite interested in the, in the sort of in the sensational Crowley and the hymn of Pan and wild stuff like that. Well, of Whereas course, actually, of course. Yeah. coming At around that age, you are, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. absolutely, it's right. Whereas actually, coming around to it again, I've been looking again at the Book of the Law and looking at the looking at some of his Chinese writings as well, and thinking actually, there's some. Um, some very important stuff here, really, that relates to that, that relates to the central art of transforming the clipart, uh, and so that's kind of what I'm looking at at the moment. I'm kind of, okay. I'm not, you know, not, not nowhere near producing something about it, but that's what's catching looking my attention. At the, looking at the calmer, truly. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yes, that's yeah, yeah. indeed. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Well, Ian. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure to have you here on this show. Um, another discovery that people can made, make here. It was your first book in that field, uh, The Keys to the Temple, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was about time. Ian, thank you so much also for sharing that wonderful um a little introduction on the path from Balkuz to Tifred. It was really impressive. And um, um, good luck with all your future plans. And let's stay in touch. And thanks for being with us. It's been a great pleasure. We very much enjoy talking to you. And yes, indeed, let's stay in touch. It'll be nice. Thank you. Thank you. Very Bye much. now. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.
Drudge Ember by Brian Lucas and that is the end of episode 23 of season 8 of the Thoughts Hermes podcast. I'm hoping that you had a good time just like I had it. It was a real joy to speak to Ian Rees. And um, once again, I remind you that you can get those 20% off from the book. Go on the website and find out how. And then... I also want to remind you, and that brings us already to what I usually do to introduce to you the next show next week, which will be episode 24. It will be the last show of this season eight, so some kind of season finale, and uh, we do something special for that. Um, It will be published quite normally at three o'clock European time on that Sunday next week. but. There will be also a speciality because Saturday, this coming Saturday, which is August the 20th at 9 p.m. Central European time, which is 12 Pacific time, 3 p.m. New York time on that Saturday 20th, there will be a live broadcast of the interview when we do the interview. And the interview, well... I am the guest this time, Carl Abramson. I've asked him to interview me because so many of you have asked over the years that I should make an interview about myself. So I can't do that myself, of course. Carl Abrahamson is interviewing me live on YouTube and Facebook. And you, the listeners, if you're there, if you're listening live, you can even by the chat that will be attached, ask questions. And it's then up to Carl if he picks those questions up or or not. I'm, I have no influence on that. So um, I hope you will attend, if you can, the live show. It would be lovely to have many of you there. Uh, on video, of course, you can, we'll be able to see both of us. I will post the details and the exact time and where to access on Facebook and YouTube uh, in, in already today, this Sunday, and once again on Wednesday this week. So you will be able to find it, I am sure. And well, I hope that you will be with us. If not, you can always listen to that episode 24 afterwards when the interview will be published quite normally in a show, which is episode number 24. And that will be the end of season eight. We take a week break after that and season nine will follow with new surprises, new guests, new interviews. Well, thank you for listening this week. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope... I coped well with my new microphone that I have here. Those of you who have good ears might have heard that it sounds a bit differently and I'm still playing around a little bit with it and hope it wasn't too bad. Uh, but I really like the microphone. I just need to to find out the details and fiddle around a bit more. So thanks for listening and until next week, I hope. Take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.